Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. Our guests today talk about the tremendous strides made over the past 15 years in implementing best practices around student retention and support, at least in the undergraduate space. Unfortunately, many schools are falling short when it comes to helping their graduate students stay on path and graduate in a timely manner. Our experts talk about why this gap exists and share steps schools can take to improve. Thank you for listening and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Office Hours with EAB. My name is Amy Luchens and I'm a consultant and principal at EAB and I'm joined by my colleague, Ed Bennett, a managing director with our student success group. In a nutshell, our work is centered around helping universities do a better job of recruiting, enrolling, and supporting their students, helping them stay on path to graduation and earn their degree as efficiently and cost-effectively as possible. In my work, I consult with university leadership as they set and implement strategies to attract and enroll adult learners, ranging from bachelor's degree completers to graduate and professional students, leveraging best practices and most current landscape research as we provide innovative marketing solutions. Ed manages EAB's research into student success best practices and collaborates with student success leaders at dozens of schools who are doing really innovative work in this area. Schools by and large are a lot better at this than they were say 15 years ago, if you completely ignore what they're doing for graduate students. So today we're going to talk about graduate student success and the gap that colleges and universities need to close in terms of how they guide and support graduate students to achieve their educational goals. But before we begin, let's set the stage. So right now graduate students make up only 15% of the total student population in the United States, but they account for approximately 40% of student loans taken out each year. The average debt load of undergraduates upon graduation is around $25,000. 25% of grad students borrow almost $100,000 and 10% of grad students borrow more than $150,000. The graduate degree market has changed. The gold rush is over. Schools have to get smarter. And so really what we wanna do is in this time we have together today, and in the conversations that we have frequently, really share and explain how important graduate programs are to the universities in terms of enrollment and tuition dollars, but then also why it's all the more important to think about success initiatives at this critical moment in time. Students are going into graduate programs and they have higher expectations about how they wanna be treated and what they want in terms of a financial return on their educational investment. And as we all know, Lingering pandemic impacts and the coming and here demographic cliff are very much impacting graduate schools as well. So having set that landscape, let's go ahead and dive right in. Ed, how about we start with you? Why do you think it's taken universities and university leaders so long to come around to the idea that grad students need nudges and proactive touch points just like undergraduate students? Amy, uh, and uh, first of all, thank you for Bring me on the podcast today. Um, hi, everyone. Uh, as Amy mentioned, my name is Ed Bennett. I lead a lot of student success research at EAB, and I've been thinking a lot about graduate student success over the last year. So really, really excited to be chatting about this today. Um, I think your question is a complex one uh, with a, quite a few answers. Uh, the first one is probably that, you know, the core of the institution you would think of as undergrads at most places. Uh, and so, of course, they're going to get the most attention. You alluded to it before. They still represent the majority of students. 
So of course, that's where schools are going to focus. So also there's this perception that graduate students have already done it once. You know, they, they completed college already successfully once, so they figured it out. Maybe they don't need as much support, you know, when they're attempting their next degree, even though perhaps the first degree was a struggle. You know, maybe they needed a lot of help to get to the finish line in that one. Uh, and, you know, they're not that terribly different when you move from being, you know, 22 and finishing your bachelor's degree to being 23 or 24, you know, even a little bit older and starting your master's degree or some other graduate program. I think the thing that maybe is most interesting for the two of us and perhaps also for the audience is the demographic nature as well. Yes. Uh, you alluded to it before and, you know, it's hard to visualize in a podcast, but I want everybody to be thinking about kind of a, a graph of millennials moving into Gen Z. Uh, and you probably know that millennials are a huge generation, lots and lots of people. And Gen Z, the generation that comes after, their oldest Zs are in their early 20s right now. Uh, the generation that comes after is a bit smaller. Um, and of course, they have different behaviors, but we're not going to talk about that so much today as we are going to be about the total volume of them. Well, the peak year for high school graduation in the U.S. is 2013. And after that, of course, you know, fewer high school students, which meant that our undergraduate admissions directors started feeling the pinch. And so we started thinking about student retention at the undergrad level as part of an enrollment strategy at a lot of schools. And, you know, in some areas of the country, that's still kind of coming around others like the Northeast and the Midwest. It's been a way of life for some years now. Well, that is going to be a little bit delayed hitting the graduate space simply because of how, you know, we get older and progress through our lives. So those 2013 high school graduates are now, if you add eight years to that, you know, 26. They're right in the middle of the graduate school kind of sweet spot market right now. So in a way, enrollment is easy to get because there's lots of students. That's before you, in fact, are in pandemic effects uh, and economic change. So in a way, those pressures that have hit the undergraduate space, where you have to do a much better job, not only recruiting, but retaining those students, hanging on to them for enrollment purposes, hasn't quite hit the graduate space yet, but it's coming. You know, it'll be coming in the next few years as the Zs start working their way through undergrad into the graduate space. And, you know, there's a couple of different options there. You could, you know, try to draw more students in, you can open new programs, but uh, we are definitely encouraging schools to be looking a lot more at retaining those students that you fight so incredibly hard to get in the first place and in the future are likely to continue to fight even harder to get. I know what you think about that, Amy. I just talked for quite a bit there, but uh, this is also, you know, very much your world. So uh, weigh in on that. And what do you think? Yeah. And, you know, Ed, this is a conversation that we have frequently, both on campus and then internally here at AB, as we tend to think about ways that we can serve students on the front end and then to your point through their experience. And I think that while we won't center our conversation today around behaviors and mindset shifts, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on it because a lot of that thinking student mindset is really driving how we're thinking about the recruitment process. And we're seeing success in the recruitment process um, as we take that into account. And that of course plays into like, we're talking about the success piece. So what I mean by that in real terms is we know that the folks that you're talking about who are now becoming um, graduate and professional students have a lot more um, 
a lot more diversity of experience, a lot more, like we talked about at the outset, debt than they've ever had before, and also a keener expectation that institutions will meet them where they're at as a result. They learned some of that as undergraduate students, and then some of it now, quite frankly, is just a raw need, right? Students have more family obligations. Um, They have a much deeper desire to see return on investment from an educational perspective earlier on than perhaps they ever have before. And so what that means for institutions in real terms on the front end is that they shape their recruitment practices around sort of three key things. So flexibility, affordability, and speed to completion. If you're able to think about highlighting those three things and all the different tentacles that flow from them in your process as you highlight your institution and your programs, Students respond to that effectively. And then once they enroll, they expect that same level of flexibility, speed to completion, affordability to continue through in support mechanisms as they work to quickly complete their degrees. So institutions that are able to continue those practices throughout are most successful in retaining students. And to Ed's point, that serves everybody, right? So you're not just thinking about, gosh, we're serving our students, but you're serving the institution because you're not necessarily having to then increase your your recruitment efforts because you're not retaining students. Um, But then at the same time, to Ed's earlier point, given that we're in a decline from an undergraduate perspective and will be for the foreseeable future, we know that the market for graduate and professional students is going to become all the more competitive. It's it's not going to get easier. Um, and so over time, we really need to think about setting a sustainable course within the context of what we're doing to retain students to make sure that not only are we, are we getting them, but we're keeping them. Ed, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I want to riff on that just a little bit about what goals are. You know, the, the most uh, most schools that have graduate programs spent the last decade, as you alluded to, uh, building out their graduate programs is a gold rush. Uh, and the idea of just having programs kind of, you know, pop up <laughs> coming from departments or, uh, you know, from the college level, but not really centrally organized. It was just a more matter of make lots of programs happen because there's students that we want to absorb and attract. And, you know, that was kind of the story of a lot of schools for the last 10 years. That mentality is still in place for the 2020s. And, you know, we did a bit of a survey here of folks looking at uh, not just their graduate, but also adult learners, uh, trying to see, you know, how important are these sort of students to school strategic enrollment plans? And about, I think it was 75% of schools said, this is a critical population for us. And then we asked the deans of graduate education what their targets were. And we heard 15% growth every single year. That's an annual growth of 15% in the graduate space. Right. We're going to find these students because of the things we were just talking about. NCES is projecting basically flat graduate enrollment for the next 10 years. Um, and, you know, who knows? You know, it's hard to predict the future, um, especially at this time. But uh, I think 15% growth annually is, uh, you know, a bit of an overshoot <laughs> compared to what might be right. on the market. So we're going to have a situation where schools are incredibly competitive and what was a gold rush will now become, um, you know, the uh, proverbial red ocean versus the blue ocean uh, if you are a big fan of business books. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, that statistic or series of stats that you just shared, Ed, is so critical for folks to internalize because I think it's one thing to be on campus and be setting strategy and think, gosh, we probably could grow this much and, and we're going to just commit to it for a number of reasons. 
whether that's revenue or we just want to fill classes or we have some neat offerings we're really excited to share more broadly. But to your point, the challenge then becomes that if we just look at the bare numbers, you're not going to likely get 15% growth with a flat market. And based on what the National Student Clearinghouse has shared with us most recently, but undergraduate enrollment, we know that it's on a steep decline right now, particularly when we think about students going to community colleges, right. um, certainly at undergraduate institutions in a traditional context or at large. So all that is to say, like we've talked about setting the stage, there are a number of things to be aware of and, and really prepare for knowing the market is, is no longer that gold rush Ed was talking about. So with that said, let's pivot the conversation a little bit to thinking about Okay, so we know that it might be a little harder to recruit students or a lot harder in some cases. We need to be thinking about if we're offering the right program mix um, and how we're advertising it to really align with how students are thinking about what they want out of education and how we can deliver it. So that's one piece of it. But then once they enroll, what are we doing to track their success and retain them and what metrics might exist? Now, Ed, I'd love for you to take a minute to reflect on a lot of the conversations you've been having recently with university leaders around the country about um, the degree to which that has or hasn't been happening and, and sort of what we're thinking about that. Yeah, that, let me break that down into sort of three chunks. Uh, the first should be, we should talk about what does success mean for graduate students because it's a little bit more complicated than for undergrads in a lot of cases. Um, then let's talk a little bit about the, the state of affairs, like what's the current state of practice? Where are we hearing the most um, activity here? You know, where do we see some green shoots of uh, growth uh, happening as far as uh, schools building out the support structures and for graduate students, what do those look like? Um, and then I wanna talk about data and accountability because I was, of all the things that I've learned, you know, having uh, chats with several dozen different graduate school executives over the past few months, one of the things I've been very surprised to learn is just how little data is being explored here around the retention angle. Everybody looks at admissions data and recruitment data, but they're not really looking at retention data, at least not kind of a widespread national way. And I think that's a big mistake. So let's talk about that maybe third and go through the other two first. So real quick, what does graduate student success mean? Um, we know what undergraduate success means, right? Well, kind of. We we know the federal government defines it as you know first-time, full-time students that make it to the next term. That's retention. Uh, and then you know, do you graduate within 150% of the expected time? Three years for a two-year student, you know, six years for a four-year student. Again, at the same institution you started at. We know those are flawed metrics to begin with, but they're relatively simplistic in tracking degree completion. What happens in the undergrad or the graduate space? Well, master's degrees function a lot of the same way. Did the student get done? But what if you're a law student? You know, the most important part of being a law student is actually after you're done being a law student, it's passing the bar. Uh, and that is what law schools hold themselves accountable to, the ABA does. What if you're talking about doctoral students? Well, in that case, you would also be talking about time to degree. Uh, having been a doctoral student myself uh, for six years, I can tell you that was a very long six years. And if it had gone to seven or eight, I would have been more upset. Uh, so pushing the time shorter for doctoral programs is uh, is essential because that's you know an engagement strategy and also ensures that students actually finish. You know, point being is that there's a wide range of what success means in the grad space, and we should acknowledge that going in. Uh, and in a lot of ways, it's like having you know multiple different flavors of different kinds of undergraduate colleges all within the same university, all with their own success uh, profile. So. Um, that all said, when we're talking about graduate students, we're most often talking about master's students in a lot of cases at most schools, 
And then I already said it before, they seem to function a lot like undergrads in the sense of we want them to get done and we want them to get done in a timely manner. We want them to get done in a timely manner with a minimal amount of debt. Uh, so, you know, and then obviously some career outcome on the other end of that would be nice too. So you've got these sort of like more standard level kind of concepts around success that are very familiar if you've been studying this in the undergrad space. Um, before I move on to the, the second bit, which is the state of practice, wondering if you had any reactions to that or you know, whether that, that fits you know, the same or different with your own experiences talking to these same sort of folks. Yeah, and I think you hit the nail on the head. The only thing I might add is it harks back to kind of one of the things we both talked about early on in this conversation, which is it really behooves institutions to be very clear about how their population is shifting, right? Because up until about the last five or 10 years, like you said, graduate schools and professional schools have operated very similarly to how they've always operated, right? And they've been able to do that. And that's for a number of reasons, but I just wanna put a fine point on the fact that as populations continue to shift, how schools think about success absolutely has to flow in line with that, right? So. Institutions that perhaps haven't thought previously about what they, they consider to be auxiliary services are all the more important now, right? So some of the same services that you might provide undergraduate students are equally now increasingly important on the graduate level. Um, and some of those are more are more social in nature, ranging from um, support networks for parents, access to basic needs in some cases, assistance with thinking about funding in a very different way, with, of course, like Ed said, thinking about outcomes um, at the forefront because students are. And so, so I think it's not just a matter of being aware of it, but then thinking about it within the context of the students that you not only serve today, but the students that you will undoubtedly and also hope to serve in the future and kind of building an infrastructure around that. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about that infrastructure. Uh, so when I uh, have talked with schools about where their, uh, I guess their aspirations for graduate student success, success are headed, um, I most often get directed to offices that are using Navigate, which is our uh, student success management system, mostly deployed for undergraduates, but increasingly in the graduate space as well. And we heard about plenty of advising offices and other student support offices, you mentioned the auxiliary services, uh, that were starting to use Navigate to support graduate students. And we knew this because they were asking us to load grad students into the platform, which was not something that we had uh, you know, set out to do. They, they wanted to do that. So we naturally wanted to know why. Uh, and it was a very simple answer. You know, Hey, I'm a financial aid office. I serve undergrads. I serve grad students. Why would I use one system for one group of students and then completely ignore that system for another set of students? Hey, that makes perfect sense. Uh, and I kept hearing the same story over and over again. And I realized pretty quickly that this was all coming bottoms up. These were folks on the ground running uh, offices or working directly face-to-face -face with students that wanted to use the same assets they had available to them for undergrads for their graduate students. It made a lot of sense. Why wouldn't that? Where it wasn't coming from was top-down. There really wasn't any kind of, and I, I only, we only have a very small handful of schools. We'll talk about them in a moment who have any kind of like really robust graduate student success program that would be you know on par with what they're doing for undergrads. Just wasn't seeing it coming from the dean or from the provost or whoever, the president, whoever it might be, it didn't seem to be a top-down initiative. It was, like I said, the other way, it was very grassroots. And Amy, what was interesting about this and very, it felt very similar to when I started doing this work about 15 years ago, what the state of affairs was, with undergrad student success practices, we had a lot of really well-meaning folks on the ground trying to do some innovative things with students. And rarely was that making its way up to the cabinet 
and being um, addressed in a strategic way. Of course, that seems completely foreign to us now. There's can't imagine a school that doesn't have at least some conversations about student success at the cabinet level. And at most schools, you actually have cabinet level people that are now owning this problem. It's not the case in the graduate space. So there's that. Um, it's sort of uh, a moment, maybe this fits with our theme earlier of, well, it's coming in the future. We're just, a, you know, grad school is just a few years delayed off of undergrad. And I can see that too. But it's that sort of, I, know, I just said an observation that it felt very similar to what I experienced years ago learning about the undergrad problem. I don't know if you felt the same or heard sort of similar stuff. Yeah, I, I definitely think it's similar. I think that uh, the graduate and professional world is the tale of, of or follows a tale, if you will, of, of undergraduate behavior as, as the university, as academia changes. And so I think it makes a lot of sense that we are where we are right now. Now, Ed, I know that you want to take us to the second point that you had about success and kind of what that looks like. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Well, um, that was actually the bit I was saying about the support okay. structures. Uh, but maybe we can turn to the third point, which is about Great. The, yeah, yeah. Uh, the this was maybe the most interesting because man, people obsess about undergraduate student success data, uh, the, and and maybe rightly so because it is a rallying point for many institutions to want to get, you know, we want to get one more percent back. And during the pandemic, school scene, a point or two shaved off of that was a real heartbreaker for them. Um, right. And we know, you know, it matters not just for the financial side of things, but also these are real people. Like there's a morality associated with this. And of course, we're educators. We care about these students. We want them to do well. So that really hurts, right? Uh, and so people really, really dial in on those numbers. Then I talked to the graduate school and what I found was, uh, not as much activity there, hardly any at all. Most schools I talked to were not able to quote what their master's degree retention number was. Across an institution, within a college, nothing like that. Some of the other success statistics I quoted before, if they happen to be focused on them, they could tell me time to degree for doctoral students, for example. Um, obviously, the law schools know their bar passage rate because that's an accreditation issue for them. So, um, but. I just found that there was just very, very little information out there on how well the school was doing. They could all quote me how big their incoming class was because that was the numbers that they focused on. So then I started asking why this isn't happening. And like with a lot of things around data metrics and accountability, it boils down to availability of data. And then, you know, are you actually looking at it? Uh, and I asked folks, well, who had actually been able to put together a retention number for a program or a college, you know, how did how hard was it for you to get this information? And it was extremely hard. They had to go to the IR director or the registrar or an equivalent. And then there was a several month wait, <laughs> perhaps, uh, because those folks are always super busy uh, and oftentimes have to pull together and clean information from various data systems across campuses. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very difficult for them to get their hands on. And also the folks asking for it, you know, let's just be honest, you know, they're you know, a little bit lower on the hierarchy, they're not gonna be the top priority. If the president of the province is coming around and asking for a data point, IR is probably going to respond to that first because uh, that's the nature of the world. So it was difficult to get the data. When they had it, it was difficult for anybody to, to, to look at it. They were sort of sharing it with their leadership, but it wasn't a top agenda item right. for most schools in this way. Right. Uh, and it just wasn't something they were looking at. Again, vis-a-vis -vis the recruitment numbers, which they were obsessed about. So right, right. it just felt like it wasn't right. something they were talking much about at all. Yeah, and I think, it, 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 like we talked about, it's for a number of reasons, right? So 
graduate student retention is just not a squeaky wheel. It hasn't been historically, right? Like the squeaky wheel is, like you said, for, for a very understandable series of reasons, more on the front end, right? Especially when you think about undergraduates and, and in many cases, how they comprise the bulk of an institution's population. Um, but I think too, there are a number of things, you know, the, the landscape data that shifted so quickly is certainly not off in front of mind for the university leadership that I speak to on a pretty regular basis. And I'm guessing you too, Ed. And it really is a matter of us being in a position to be able to say, gosh, here we have this information and here's how quickly it's changed. And I think so often folks are really grateful to have that because there is this assumption in many cases that things are relatively similar to when they experienced a graduate education. Um, and, and that's just not the case, right? And so, so I think that as we think about sort of building out this infrastructure to serve students and, and keep them. Um, it, it's it's not just about, like you said, sort of boots on the ground folks beating a drum and saying, hey, I'm seeing this, I really need help with this. It's also about being able to equip university leadership with information that we have from the market, from a series of data sources to point to, you know, how they might build out ways in which to really track this better and efforts to better serve students. And then ultimately, of course, have them graduate. Um, so, and I think, you know, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, like I said, it's not just a squeaky wheel piece, obviously. I think uh, there is sort of this historical practice of that's sort of very much rooted in um, sort of a, a homogeneous sort of privileged group of people who would go to graduate and professional school. And that's changed a lot too, right? So we can't not talk about that. And I think that just again, saying, gosh, this has changed and here's what we have to do about it um, is really the foundation for then doing that planning, doing that data gathering. And what would you add about other common obstacles that, that we might see as, as folks are starting to think about this more and potentially thinking about how they can really change things? Yeah, I think let's, uh, let's, so let's look a little bit to the future because uh, you know we've talked quite a bit about how the current state of affairs is not a whole lot and why that might be. Um, kind of uh, sitting in a situation where we have lots of students, lots of demand. The pandemic has seen a little uptick in graduate enrollment that you know probably is a little bit of the pandemic and a little bit about what was going on, you know, again, with the size of people who want to demand graduate education. Um, so maybe not a top issue for schools in summer 2021, but what about in two, three, four years? Um, when they start to see these demographic declines or programs start to shutter because they have declining enrollments or whatever it might be. What are we going to see then? Well, you got to, I think, do three things. Um, we've got to get graduate school leaders thinking and making this an enrollment item for them. It has to be part of their strategy, just like it is for undergrads. We're going to bring them in. What are we doing to serve them? Because we have a responsibility to do that. And then how do we know that we're doing a good job bringing them to completion? They really have to look at a lot of the data there to uh, sort of meld those two things together. And the good news is that they can look at their undergrad colleagues for some tips and tricks on how to do that, because again, this has already been worked out a lot in the undergraduate space. Two is the data. You're gonna need better data systems. Uh, the reporting for undergraduate student success is now routine in the sense that it is you know, a required report that you have to send to and CES every year to be put in iPads and tracked and all those sort of things. So it's something that everybody knows to do. Um, and of course, the structures are built for it. 
not necessarily the case in the graduate space. So, you know, be thinking about where do I even get the information to review? Do I need to make an investment in data systems? It's really basic stuff. I mean, now we're talking about the CIO's territory um, and looking to pull together more elaborate and sophisticated and easier to use data sets from across the campus. This is a big thing EAB is thinking a lot about right now as others are as well. So initially being able to pull that together and then creating the occasions where you pull up and review it. And then the third thing is, okay, now you looked at the data, what are you gonna do about it? Because you already alluded to it, the, the who the students are is not necessarily who you think they are and who they are now may not be who they are in the future. Increasingly diverse classes in every kind of shape or form of that word diverse, and they're gonna require different kinds of support. So what are you gonna do about that? And here's, you know, we can point to a couple examples of where some of the kind of early movers are in this space. And what I wanna call it is National Lewis University. Uh, National Lewis is based in Chicago, but they are a bit of an unusual school. Uh, they were previously the, the second two of two plus two programs. So they were essentially the third and fourth year of college. And they also have an extensive graduate program. Uh, a lot of it's online. So in a lot of ways, they have always been the sort of school that many of you in the audience are becoming uh, going forward. Now, of course, they've expanded their undergraduate to be all four years right now, um, but they kept a lot of their soul from what they were doing before, where they were serving this more adult, more working, more online style student. What are they doing for these students? Well, every undergrad and now every master's student gets really elaborate support. They actually get three different, I'm probably gonna mess this up a little bit, so apologies to National Lewis if I don't get all the exact details correct. It's a very cool program though. Every student gets kind of a team of an advisor, a faculty member, and a career counselor or coach uh, to guide their success through their degree program. And it works very well in the undergraduate space. They're going to do the, and they are rolling out the exact same thing for graduate students. There's a huge basis of technology underneath it, but it's essentially a support structure that is modeled off what was already very, very much working for them in the undergrad space, now applied to their big master's programs. So, you know, this isn't necessarily all that terribly complicated. This could be taking something you already know works for your undergraduate students and expanding it, requires some investment, but hopefully it's one of those ones that pays for itself in terms of the recouped tuition revenue. So you don't have to look very far necessarily or come up with something crazy new and innovative. It might be doing more of the same for a greater you know, population of students. And I'll tell you, just given the state of affairs, doing anything at all is better than where most schools are at right now, which is not doing a heck of a lot. So, you know, maybe don't be so intimidated by this, but instead, you know, be expanding what you have to roll out. Yep, I agree with you, Ed, and I think that those are really actionable takeaway steps that leadership can use as they begin to think about this in more detail. So thinking about if I could kind of wave my magic wand and think about the future, I would say first, make sure that you really equip yourself with an understanding of what's happening from a landscape perspective. Two, do study or reach out to us to ask about where, where do we see best practices and what are students responding to and how are universities accommodating these shifts in their practices? And then finally, what mechanisms exist, like some of the ones you mentioned uh, that we offer that, that help institutions manage some of these changes and make sure that we keep those students tracking towards graduation. So I think, you know, kind of future casting, those are the things that I would suggest people do now if they haven't already to bolster uh, the strength of their institution and then kind of have a forward eye to how they can continue to be nimble in their approach as, as things continue to shift in sort of the broader landscape over time. And I'll just add, you know, please do check back with us. This is an active, 
All right, an area of active inquiry for us right now. Both you and I are trying to learn much more about this, uh, of course, in service of our partners. Um, you know, we're we're learning as we go on this one as well, just like everybody else. So, uh, you know, keep up with EAB as we think more about graduate students over the next few months and years uh, to understand kind of what our position is on that. And of course, if you'd like to know more, reach out to us. Uh, we'll be able to talk to you. This is a very exciting and new avenue right now. So. Uh, you know, lots of interesting new conversations to have, and we're happy to help get anybody up to speed who might need to know a little bit more. Hopefully you got a little bit today, and of course we can offer uh, tons of stuff on eab.com or just reach out to us. So um, with that, Amy, I think that's probably a natural wrap-up point, don't you? Absolutely, it was great to talk to you about this today. Yeah, you too. Uh, hope to see you again in the, uh, in the office uh, at some point soon uh, coming up. So I think it's gonna be the case for a lot of us, so. All right. Thank you for listening. Please join us next week as we examine the biggest challenges and opportunities financial aid offices face as they prepare for the Department of Education to implement the FAFSA Simplification Act. Until then, thank you for your time.